Good morning, everyone. This is Rick Whitlock. I'm one of the pastors here at Campus House. And man, is it good to speak with all of you today. You know, I'm an introvert, and I don't mind spending some time by myself. And many introverts I noticed this week were posting kind of jokingly online, I've been training for this my entire life, social distancing. You know, if any of you extroverts need some tips on social distancing, we've been doing this for years. However, even though I am an introvert, um, and supposedly my personality type is the most extroverted of the introverts, so I'm kind of on the line between introversion and extroversion. And while plenty of weeks I am glad to go home to a quiet house on certain nights when no one else is there, this week, and I felt like I would gladly join a mosh pit of people dancing, or I would even go crowd surfing, just anything to be around a bunch of people again. This is pretty hard, isn't it? It's only been a week. It's the first week of social distancing, and we might be in for quite a bit more of this. And those of us here at Campus House, those of us on staff, we are feeling it too. We have friends and family members who are prone to getting sick, and we're worried about them. Uh, We want to know how we can serve our local community, but without harming anybody. We've, we've been challenged to know what exactly are the next steps that we should take. We've wanted to be together in person, but we're limiting our contact with one another. We've been doing a lot of video calls. We've wanted to be with you all. We've longed for you to come back to campus for those of you who would have been coming back. And we know that many of you won't be back this semester at all. And we're grieving that graduation will be done virtually or that seniors will have to spend their last semester away or that athletes won't be able to compete, that all of us can't worship together in person. And we recognize and feel all of this. And we imagine you're feeling it a lot too. We feel it in the depths of our being. And uh, we want you to know we love you guys and we long to be together again. We also want to protect one another. We want to care for one another unselfishly even at cost to ourselves like Jesus did. So if we have to keep our distance in order to love, we will. For love's sake, we will. Uh, But we refuse in this moment to keep our spiritual distance. We refuse to give up on our relationships, both with God and with people. And we want to invite you and encourage you, don't give up either. We felt this first wave, this first week of how hard it is as a society to pull this off, to pull off social distancing. And some people didn't even try. And others have already been feeling the effects of it. But we are committed to it for the good of our neighbors. But in being committed to that, we are also committed to one another as a community who, even if we aren't in the same building or the same room or the same place, we want to keep as many healthy, spiritual, and communal rhythms in place as we can, including Sundays. So as Ken, one of our other pastors, said this week when I was talking with with him, he said, you know, not having structure, not having rhythm is really hard for me. And I'm the same way as Ken. So as a Campus House staff, we've we've been having a lot of conversations about how can we continue to have certain structures, certain rhythms, the ones that we've already had, and also ones that we could create that would help help us flourish in this time of pandemic. So we'll be sharing more with you about that in the coming weeks. But for now, please know each Sunday, we will continue to worship and to teach God's word and to invite you to share in that with us from wherever you are currently located. So we'll be uh, doing stuff every Sunday and inviting you into that, inviting the people around you into that with you. 
Uh, and if you don't know, we release a podcast for our community groups every single Tuesday about Ecclesiastes. We've been doing that all semester. And it's an amazingly relevant book uh, from the Bible about our lives right now. In fact, this Tuesday's episode, we planned this way back in the fall, actually, but this week's episode is called Planning the Future and Facing Death. It comes out of Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7 to chapter 12, verse 8. So we invite you, listen into that episode. There's going to be two weeks on that passage, actually, part one and part two of Planning the Future and Facing Death. So we invite you, listen in, do so with others, join a community group, even, uh, or create one, meet virtually with some of your peers, and discuss these things together. If you want to look for the podcast, it can be found on iTunes or Spotify. It's simply called Ecclesiastes, and it has a Campus House logo on, on part of it. Uh, another note that I want to make to you is to look for a survey. It's going to be coming out on Monday, and we hope that you'll take this survey. It'll be in your email if you get our email updates. It's a short survey. It should take you no more than five to seven minutes. But we want to know how you're doing and what your plans are and how we can be praying for you. So please take that survey when it arrives in your inbox, or you can go on our website or find it on our social media starting this upcoming Monday. And finally, we are working hard to come up with weekly rhythms of prayer, of encouragement, and pastoral care that can work during a time like this when many of us are distanced but in need of spiritual direction. So we're thinking a lot about uh, being pastors with an online presence. So using our social media, our website, thinking about videos or podcasts, we plan to keep ministering the Word of God as the Church of God as much as possible. God has gifted his people to one another, and he's given us his spirit to grow in Christ-likeness and holiness. And then he's given us gifts for speaking and serving by his grace in all times, in all places, in all seasons. And so when we look at church history, we see that God's people have been those who have faced calamity and chaos and crisis and career breakdowns and church persecution and wars and famines and cancers. And the coronavirus is another real threat, a real struggle, but God's people have never shied away from holding fast to Jesus, to his word, and to other people who are also believers. So we seek to do that today, and we seek to continue that in the coming weeks. The coronavirus is just one more terrible circumstance that we also see is God's opportunity uh, to, to share the gospel with others and to grow in the gospel ourselves. God will overcome this. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. He might not immediately fix it. Maybe he will. But he will overcome ultimately with the greater hope of the gospel for those who root themselves in it. And so today, tomorrow, forever, we keep turning back to that gospel. Let's hold on to him. Let's hold on to his word. Let's hold on to one another as his people who are facing crisis, but doing so in the faithful love, the, the faithful power, the faithful strength of Christ our King. We refuse to give way to fear. And we will hold fast to our faith in him. So brothers and sisters, I want to pray for us. And then I invite you to join me as we look at God's word in the Sermon on the Mount once again. We've been doing the Sermon on the Mount and we are now entering the last chapter of that sermon from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So today we're looking at Matthew chapter 7, just the beginning few verses. And so friends, let's pray. And then we'll look at God's word. Heavenly Father, we call on you as our Father, and we are your children. Lord, hear our prayer. 
in the abundance of your steadfast love for us, answer our prayers. According to your faithfulness, deliver us. Emotionally, don't let us sink in this time. With our relationships, let us not fail to serve and to love. With you, let us not forget that you have hope that is eternal. Lord, we pray that you would draw near to us in this time as we seek you again, as we listen to your word. We are aware of the afflictions of others and we pray for the sick. Oh God, would you heal them? We pray for the medical workers. Would you protect them and give them wisdom and strength? We pray for our neighbors, for our family, for our friends and ourselves, that you would give us the ability both to be together in healthy ways and also the strength to stay apart as an act of love when we must. Lord, we pray that even in this time of great difficulty and challenge, you would provide for us and you would show us your ways. encourage you, if you'd like to get out a Bible and turn with me to the Sermon on the Mount, which was Jesus's first major teaching, and it's recorded in the chapters of Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5, 6, and 7. We've been studying this all semester, and we've decided not to break away from that pattern. So today we begin Matthew chapter 7, and we want to continue listening and learning from Jesus, listening to him, learning from him, because we believe it's crucial to continue orienting every part of our hearts, our minds, and our lives around his teaching, uh, not just hearing what he says, but actually doing it. And so today we're focusing on one of the most famous verses in Scripture. In fact, it's such a famous verse that many people, both Christians and non-Christians, would summarize all of Jesus' teaching with this verse. I don't think that's an exaggeration to say. We're looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, where the first verse says, Do not judge. And then Jesus tells us this well-known story about the man with a piece of wood in his eye trying to help his friend who has a speck of sawdust in his eye. So let's read this, and then we'll discuss what Jesus means by do not judge. This is Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's this plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred, and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. You know, I was talking recently with some men and women who are in their mid-20s, and we'd gotten into this discussion about when to confront somebody about their actions or behaviors or words. And they were all wondering, aren't we supposed to be peacemakers as God's people? Doesn't the Bible condemn anger? Anger Doesn't Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, back in chapter 5, equate anger with murder? And yet, as we discussed this, it became really clear to us that almost all of us could easily name someone in our lives with whom we were struggling. Someone who we thought needed to be confronted about the way that they were treating us or others. And this situation 
immediately produced for us a fear of being judgmental. We all felt it, a fear of being too critical. And so most of us also felt this tinge of guilt that we knew this relationship in our lives needed some work. But for many of us, we'd waited so long to say anything to our friend or family member or whoever it was, afraid that the timing wasn't right or that we were being too critical or too judgmental. So now we hadn't said anything at all and it seemed too late or it seemed like it was not worth bringing up. I remembered that C.S. Lewis has this essay called The Trouble with X. And in that essay, it's this brilliant scenario that he lays out. And he says this, I suppose I may assume that seven out of 10 of those who read these words of mine are in some kind of difficulty about some other human being. Either at work or at home, either the people who employ you or those whom you employ, either those who share your house or those whose house you share, either your in-laws or your parents or your children, your wife or your husband are making life harder for you than it needs to be. We do not often mention these difficulties to outsiders, but sometimes we do. An outside friend asks us why we're looking so glum, and the truth comes out. On such occasions, the outside friend usually says, But why don't you just tell them? Why don't you go to your wife or husband or father or daughter or boss or landlord or roommate and get it all out in the open? People are usually reasonable. All you've got to do is make them see things in the right light. Explain to them in a reasonable, quiet, friendly way. They'll understand. And we, whatever we say outwardly, we think sadly to ourselves, well, you just don't know X. You just don't know this person. We do. We know how utterly hopeless it is to make X see reason. Either we've tried it over and over again, tried until we're sick of trying it, or else we've never tried because we saw from the beginning how useless it would be. We know that if we attempt to have it out with X, we will cause a scene, or else X will stare at us in blank amazement and say, I don't know what on earth you're talking about. Or, perhaps this is the worst of all, X will quite agree with us and promise to turn over a new leaf and put everything on a new footing. And then, 24 hours later, will be exactly the same as they have always been. Have you experienced what C.S. Lewis is talking about? Every one of us has experienced some form of relational difficulty. And especially today, whether inside or outside the church, we live in a world where our whole motto is, Don't judge me. While we yet go around judging and criticizing everyone and everything, especially on the internet, almost as if the internet gives us an invisibility cloak, or since we can't say these things to each other in our, in our own household or in our workplace, we're afraid of being judgy or being too critical, but somehow it gets out on the internet for a lot of people. To quote C.S. Lewis again, you know, as w- w- it seems in general that We vacillate between having the courage to confront and then having the fear of actually confronting. To quote Lewis again, You know, in fact, that any attempt to talk things over with X will shipwreck on the old fatal flaw in X's character. And you see, looking back, how all the plans you've ever made always shipwrecked on that fatal flaw, on their incurable jealousy or laziness or touchiness or unclear thinking or bossiness or bad temper or inconsistency. It's hard not to see these flaws in others, isn't it? Sometimes we think that maybe if the circumstances change or then then the flaws in our friends and family, they would go away if their health was restored or they made more money or the coronavirus ended. But most of us soon realize that 
Character flaws are called character flaws for a reason. They're not circumstantial flaws. They're character flaws. They're flaws in the person, not flaws caused by something outside the person. And that's why your dad could become a millionaire but still remain a bully, or why your friend could graduate from college but still drink too much, or why your wife could get her dream home and still complain, or your husband could get a promotion and still overwork, or why your sister could start going to church but still tear you down at home, or why your boyfriend could go to counseling but still remain so sensitive. Even if all the external things went right, we come to realize that so much of our relational happiness still depends on the character of the people you have to live with and work with and are friends with, and you can't simply alter their character. And so some of us try to have open, uh, open conversations, honest conversations with our friends or our family, but they often don't go that well. And others of us never try to do that. We take a more passive approach. We say, live and let live, man. There, there's nothing you can do about it. And many of us don't want to be seen as judgmental. But especially if you're a Christian, you feel, you'll feel caught, I think. Often feel caught between Jesus' words, do not judge, and his other words in Matthew 18, later in the Gospel of Matthew, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Wait, do not judge, but also tell people their faults? It seems that so much of our lives depends on how we relate to others. That's how God made us. But in a fallen world where people have character flaws that impact one another on a day-to-day basis, what are we to do? How are we to rightly understand Jesus' words about judging? Well, first we see that it starts with a simple command. Do not judge. And Jesus' command, especially in our culture, requires some explanation, I think. Uh, Because if you look at it, right, it does say do not judge. But then immediately following, there's a reason. Uh, Or you too will be judged, or so that you will not be judged. And then in verse 2, he goes on to give a reason. The word for is a reason word. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So the statement, do not judge, has some qualifications to it. It's not simply saying, do not judge ever. But it says, Think about how you judge, because in the way that you judge, you also will be judged. So the, the idea is, well, you're actually already judging. All of us do that. And it doesn't condemn judging. Ironically, Jesus isn't uh, judging all judging. He's judging a certain kind of judging, right? And this is important. There's, there's two problems uh, that really come up for us with the word judge here, I think. So the first would be, and I'll quote some ideas from author and scholar Jonathan Pennington. I think he puts it really well. He says there's a translation problem, and then there's also a totalizing problem. And the translation problem is the way that we understand the word judge. So today, in English, uh, we, we tend to think the word judge simply means to condemn. But all throughout history, in every language, including the English language, that's an oversimplification. Most people did not just think of the word judge or to judge to mean to condemn. It, there, it really means to, to separate out, to separate out the facts, to discern, to evaluate, right? So to judge something, uh, to judge uh, the, the pie eating contest is to discern which pie actually tastes better and has a better texture. That's judging it. No one's pie is condemned, right? So the word judge doesn't necessarily simply mean to condemn. 
And so when we understand it that way, it actually distorts our view of justice because there is a legal understanding of the word judge as well, right? And it has to do with a courtroom. But even a judge or a jury, they're actually doing that more general sense of judging. First, they're going through a process where they deliberate and they discern and they look at all the facts and they weigh them against one another. That's why Jesus uses the word measure, right? The, the way you measure, the measure you use will be measured to you. Kind of like the scales of justice. There's always been Lady Justice in the courtroom holding her scales as if what we're saying is we want to have a fair balance. We need to weigh everything rightly against one another. So there's standards. And justice, when it's actually carried out, is never simply condemnation, right? In a courtroom, two verdicts are actually always in play. The evil is meant to be, those who are evil are meant to be declared or pronounced guilty and then condemned. They're condemned to their sentence. They're dismissed from the courtroom and put in prison. But there's another side. Those who are righteous, those who aren't condemned, but are actually vindicated. Their cause is found to be just. They are in the right, seen in the right light. The judge or the jury has declared uh, their cause just or righteous. Or maybe if they were the defendant, they're declared not guilty. They were found to not be worthy of being condemned for their actions and behaviors. And so we have to translate judge uh, to mean more. So what Jesus is talking about yes, includes condemnation. Do not judge can mean do not condemn. Absolutely. James chapter 4 will tell us the reason is, James chapter 4 verses 10 to 12 tells us it's when we condemn others or when we speak evil, as James puts it, against one another, uh, we're actually speaking against the law and against the true judge. What we're showing is we think we're the judge, but he says there's only one lawgiver and judge, and he's talking about God. And so to judge, though, in the broader sense of justice, and even in Jesus's own clarification, means to think about the way that we measure. And the question is whether the scales are measured properly. Are you actually judging fairly? That's the issue. It's not, do not judge ever, but do not judge in such a way that you wouldn't ever live up to the scales by which you measure. So if you find fault with others, if you see their character flaws, but you act as if you have none then you are condemned here, actually, in a just way, because Jesus is actually saying, do not judge others as you would want to be judged. That judgment is inappropriate when it's done unfairly. And now here's the second thing, the totalizing issue. And this is where people, because of our misunderstanding, our translation issue, uh, we often then take this understanding of to judge, or do not judge rather, and we make it about everything. Some people, including some Christians, would interpret every single thing Jesus has ever said through the lens of this statement, do not judge. And the whole idea of Christianity then is it's it's a loving religion, which is true. God is love. But Therefore, that means do not judge. But this fails to to see so much of the Bible. Let's just even think about the rest of Matthew chapter 7. In verse 6, Jesus says, Do not throw valuable things to dogs and hogs, to dogs and pigs, he says. The idea is that you're not supposed to put something valuable in front of people who are constantly going to reject its value and treat it poorly. Right? So he's telling you, be discerning. And later in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13, he tells you there's two paths, there's two gates that you can live, that you can walk through, and each leads to a different path on which you can walk out your life. Are you walking on the right path? 
So you have to discern. And then the next verses tell you, you must discern between true and false teachers. And you'll be able to tell if people are really teaching the kingdom of God by the way that they live their lives. Over and over again throughout the Bible, the Bible is filled with the matters, uh, with matters of discernment, of evaluating people and circumstances, and to do so with wisdom. That's why all the wisdom books exist in the Old Testament. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is actually taking a very wisdom teacher kind of stance. So this is wisdom literature, and he's trying to teach us how to discern. So he's not saying, he's not totalizing it. Do not judge ever, but do not judge unfairly. And then he shifts, right, to a question. He asks in verse 3, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? So he's telling a story, right? And the story is actually meant to be really funny because Jesus is picturing uh, this guy with a giant piece of, of like a log coming out of his eye. The, the Greek word is dakos, and it actually refers to a supporting beam, like a wooden beam that would help hold up the roof. So it's this massive piece of wood coming out of the eye. And then you see your friend over here who has a speck of sawdust in his eye. Remember, Jesus was a carpenter, so he's using some carpentry metaphors. And he's giving you this funny image, and it's funny until you see how serious it is. You see that there's a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, and you want to help. You know that the sawdust is bad for his eye, probably impairing his vision and maybe causing him to harm others as well. He has this flaw within him. But because you're blind to your own because of the, the wood that's in your own eye, the giant joist, the beam that goes across the floor to hold up the whole building. And so you try to help him, but you're just smacking him around with this, this log, this giant tree. Uh, it's as if Jesus is saying a redwood tree is trying to teach a shrub how to be subtle. But a redwood tree is, is huge. It can't teach subtlety. It's the opposite of subtlety. And so what Jesus is saying is when you look at your brother and you see his fatal flaw, have you ever looked at yourself? His question is, why do you look at, why do you pay attention to the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? And the implication of that is he's telling us where we should be paying attention. He's telling us what we should actually be paying attention to. The question he's asking really is, where is your attention focused? Is it more on other sin or your own? And by inference, He's giving us a path forward. He's actually teaching us about repentance and humility. He's telling us, self-examine, pay attention to the character flaw that you have. What real help can you give your brother with his own sin if you never pay attention to your own? How is that a fair measurement? How can you look at all the flaws of others? Criticize them unfairly. The unfair part being that you have never really or fairly taken a good hard look at your own life. You haven't taken a good hard look at your own character flaws. And Jesus' assessment of that is the only time I'm aware of, I think, that Jesus actually says this word to his own disciples. But he says in verse 5, you hypocrite. So he says that anyone who does this is actually a hypocrite, is actually pretending uh, or playing at, putting on an external caring about the things outside of themselves, but not caring at all about the heart, which is what the Sermon on the Mount has been about all along. Jesus essentially says that his own judgment of the judger is that they are a hypocrite. So judge not, in the words of Frederick Bruner, actually first comes to mean judge yourself. Do not judge others, he's saying, 
before you have judged yourself. So interestingly, if you want, so here's what he's saying, do not condemn. But he is telling us, do correct. He still says that you actually are supposed to help your brother, help your friend take the speck out of their eye. He doesn't, so you have to still correct. But he's also saying that the way, the only way to really begin being able to actually correct others in a good, fair, just way is to start by judging yourself. Actually, the beginning of all of this, the beginning of repentance, the beginning of helping others, the beginning of any kind of true and good judgment about anything is to first see that you, you are worthy of being judged. You actually say, the right place for me is not to be the judge, but to be in the judgment seat. I deserve judgment. This is what Jesus says. He's teaching us to repent in verse 5 when he says, first take the plank out of your own eye. So the only way that we'll be able to correct others really, truly, well, and good in Jesus's kingdom way is if we've actually humbled ourselves. We humble ourselves. We come and say, I am worthy of judgment. I have character flaws. My, my life, if I were to really take a good hard look at it, it would be like a giant piece of wood is sticking out of my face and I'm smacking other people with it at my workplace, in my home, in my friendships. And yet all this time, I've been largely unaware of it. I've easily seen others' flaws, but have I really seen my own? Jesus says, first, take the plank out of your own eye. First, remove it. It's the act of repentance. So, it's only then that's, that you can secondly go, after doing this for yourself, go and do this with others. And it's not saying that you have to be a perfect person or get your act together. The whole thing in the Sermon on the Mount is that hypocrites are people who try to get their act together, but they can't. They're not doing anything from the heart. They're just trying to look good. And in our culture, it's very important for all of us to not look judgy. But the thing is, it's still happening in our hearts. We're still unfairly thinking about the flaws and sins and shortcomings of others. It's just maybe we don't talk about it in a certain way, or we don't want to say it because we don't want to appear judgy. But Jesus is saying, from the heart, from the heart. In Matthew 18, he tells a story of an unforgiving servant, a servant who was forgiven by the king, a massive debt. But then the servant goes out and starts beating up these other servants who owe him these little tiny debts. And the king finds out and throws him into prison and says, and the reason is because he has judged so unfairly. He has clearly not understood the weight of the forgiveness that he's received. And this is the other thing that Jesus is leading us to see, not only how we ought to repent, how we ought to turn from our own character flaws, be working towards those things, making a plan in a way to be working towards those flaws. But he's also telling us, do you see if you have ever received grace and forgiveness, how much you must extend those to others. How unfair would it be if God and others have forgiven you, but you won't look with grace upon them? So we are to correct. You are to clearly first remove the speck or the plank from your own eye. But then it does say in verse 5, also remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so at issue is whether we're really seeing correctly. We have 20-20 vision for other people's sins and flaws, but we don't have such good vision for ourselves. We can read the tiny print on the eye exam chart of their flaws, but we can't even read the large print on our own. 
That's one of our core problems. We have eagle eyes for other people's shortcomings and their character flaws, but we're blind as bats when it comes to our own. Are we seeing correctly? Are we measuring? Do we have the right measurement whenever we're making judgments? The only way to see others correctly is to first take a look at ourselves. You know, there's this thing called parallax, where the, it's the effect by which the position or the direction of a, an object appears to, dif- to differ when viewed from different positions. So uh, if you're looking, if you're sitting in the passenger seat looking at the speedometer, you actually are reading a different speed than the person sitting in the driver's seat who's le- reading that dial straight on. And we can't judge things correctly because we essentially have parallax. We cannot see correctly, Jesus is saying. Judgment has to do with clear sight and fair measures. What is right in our own eyes uh, is often wrong, actually, in God's. It sets us up to be a judge where we assess everything from our own perspective. The Bible points out that this is utter foolishness all throughout the scriptures, from Deuteronomy and the book of Judges and Proverbs. They all say the same thing. In order to correct others, we must be corrected. And it's not to say that we, again, have to be perfect before we seek to restore a friend. Obviously, a spec, a character flaw in someone else is annoying. It's irritating. And if they're trying to operate in the world with impaired vision themselves, it can cause harm. But how much more if it's a plank obscuring our own vision? There's a reason why my visually impaired grandfather is not allowed to drive anymore. He's 95, and a while ago, the state of Delaware understood that he was a danger to himself and others. So they judged, rightly, that he should have his license removed. Before that, he had kept on driving, and essentially, he would rely on his years of experience of driving in the same places to basically feel out where he was with his limited vision. One time he told me he drove to Virginia to visit his daughter based on memory. Not not uh, see, seeing the road signs, but memory. I mean, he could see enough, but he can't see that clearly. But because his eyes, to his eyes, everything's blurry. Eventually, he had to have his license taken away because he did hit a few things. Fortunately, nothing serious. But his judgment was off, right? He wasn't able to discern things properly, to see properly, because his eyes were impaired. The only way to change is to start to see ourselves first and foremost. And here's the great news. In the end, this whole passage comes down to humility and courage. Do you and I have the courage to take a hard look at our own flaws and faults? Do we have the humility to see ourselves rightly and soberly judge our true nature? Are we able to think rightly of ourselves and others as we ought to think? Or are our judgments so off because we can't see ourselves and others as we truly are? Look, when you see the flaws and faults in others, you're probably right. They really do have those flaws and faults. And true friends will speak to their friends about their flaws and their faults. But true friends have also first taken a good hard look at themselves and their own flaws and their own faults and have come to see how massive they are. It becomes a lot easier for others to point out our own faults to us when we've done the work ourselves because we're no longer surprised or defensive about them. We know that they're there. And even when our friends or family point out new flaws and faults we weren't even aware of before, we aren't surprised that we didn't see them before. Jesus is telling us that in this world, our system of of weights and measures is off. We just don't see how big our own flaws and faults really are. And when we take Jesus' words rightly about judgment, we see that he's actually leading us not only to humble self-examination and courageous confrontation, first of our own faults and then of others' flaws in order to correct them too, but he's actually leading us 
to forgiveness. True repentance and forgiveness requires us to actually have seen the brokenness that exists in us. And if we don't see our flaws and faults, how meaningful will forgiveness be? The thing is, if we really know ourselves, we really take a good, hard, close look, a real humble self-examination, we will walk away knowing without a shadow of a doubt that we need forgiveness, and we will have seen the damage that we have done, wielding our log eye around in all of our relationships, smacking people with the flaws and faults that we are blind to, and we'll be humbled. Because truly facing ourselves will produce in us proper measurements and judgments. We'll discern that maybe we aren't in such a position to judge others' faults. Not not that we aren't in a position to correct them. We are. But not to judge in a condemning way. Because we see how hard it is even for ourselves to grow and to change. When When we know that, that it's painful to become aware of our faults, how much more gracious will we be with others, more forgiving? When we see how much forgiveness and grace we need. Jesus is leading us to see how much grace and forgiveness we need, how much we must extend this grace to others. Not because we now avoid correcting, but we do avoid condemning. Rather the opposite, we will correct. We, we will do so much more and with much greater humility and forgiveness because we ourselves know how much we need it first. James said in James chapter 4, there's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. That's James 4 verse 12. And this is the fuller definition of judgment we were talking about earlier. Judgment's never just about condemnation, but also about salvation. There is one judge able to save and able to destroy. He damns evil and he defends the righteous. This is why we hate others' flaws and we hate our own flaws. We see that others' flaws destroy our lives. And when they won't listen to reason, they won't love us in return. They won't help us when we ask. They won't stop being so sensitive or jealous or angry or indecisive or inconsistent. It makes us feel like some part of our life is being destroyed. They're taking away our lives, not adding to them in constructive ways. And then when we see that we, our own flaws, we hate it as well. We don't like it when someone points out to us because that also destroys our lives. We don't measure up. We don't measure up to our own standards, let alone God's. And so we walk around trying to save ourselves from not being good enough, pretty enough, smart enough, happy enough enough, fulfilled enough. So much of what we do is about saving ourselves from the judgments we have, either against ourselves or against others, or what we believe God has against us. We don't measure up and we know it. And so we, when we stand before others and see the truth about ourselves, it can feel hopeless. That's why we defend, why we resist, why we fight back. But here's the thing. Jesus experienced unjust human judgment and just divine judgment. He took on both. He knows what it's like to be unfairly judged by people. He also knows what it's like to be fairly judged for sin by God. He took on both. He took our place. As the old hymn goes, in my place condemned he stood. He bore the unfair judgments people pronounced against us and that we have pronounced against others. And he also took the fair judgments God pronounces against all sinners and sin. He took it all. And this reveals what kind of God we have, a God so humble that he not only reveals our sin to us, but takes our place under the terms of just judgment. He was destroyed for us. And it reveals a God who's so courageous that he won't leave us in our sin, but would die for us to point out that we have sinned, but only so that we might be saved. He was destroyed by our sin so that through his destruction, through Jesus being judged, we would be saved from judgment. And that's the true story of judgment, and it changes everything. God, the only one who has both authority to judge and the accuracy to rightly judge, sees you to the core, and instead of condemning you, forgives you. He carries out both sides of justice. 
both sides of judgment. He condemns the evil of our sins and faults on the cross, but he also vindicates the righteousness of his son in the resurrection. He took our sin, but gave us his life. And now, brothers and sisters, you and I get to do the same thing with one another. He gave us a model for forgiveness. He gave us forgiveness. Then he also gave us a model for how to do it. We examine ourselves. We humble ourselves. We repent of our sin and we seek to remove it by relying on what God says is now true about us. We are forever forgiven in Christ, not forever flawed. We are freed from condemnation in Christ and gifted vindication. We have not received what we deserve, but what Christ deserved, glory and honor. And so we treat one another the same, ready to forgive because of the grace that we first received. We're not surprised by the reality of flaws and faults in ourselves and in others. So we walk humbly and courageously through all of it, not condemning one another but becoming even more aware of our own faults, but graciously receiving the forgiveness of Christ and walking that out with others, having the courage to correct them, because we are aware now that love sees us to the bottom and accepts us where we are, but never leaves us where we are. This is the Christian life. We can judge fairly because Jesus makes us aware of how great our sin is, but also how great our grace, his grace is for us. You and I have been judged by Christ's work on the cross, and so we judge others in the same light, sinners in need of great grace. And so we are no longer passive, no longer passive in our approach. We don't just let it go and then harbor anger and resentment when we see others' flaws. And we never just allow ourselves to sit around thinking about those hurts that caused are caused by others, or even those that we have caused to others. We don't just keep moving and try to remain positive and don't think about the hard things too much. Jesus has called us to self-examination. But we are never those who are the judge. The final verdict has been passed, but it wasn't by us. It was by Jesus who declared us freed from judgment through his work on the cross. When we decide that our own sin and shortcomings aren't worth looking at, we actually neglect the grace that Jesus came to give, the one who stared it in the face all of our sins and flaws and was unafraid to take them on in order to bring us into forgiveness. We don't want to be judgy people, so we often ignore sin and shortcomings. And if we can do so in love, if we can overlook them, that's one thing, but not ignore them. We don't pretend that they're not there. So, friends, Jesus loved us by revealing our sin to us. When we look at him, we see someone who didn't have a plank or, a wood, or of wood in his eye or a speck of sawdust even, but rather was nailed to a wooden cross with clear eyes, nothing in his eyes, but clear, full eyes of love, knowing full well that he would receive the judgment of God against sin rather than us. The one who told us, do not judge, is the one who said, let that judgment fall on me. This is the lens by which we now see clearly. Our sin costs so much that it cost Jesus' life. Our restoration was so worthwhile to him that he wouldn't leave us alone, but corrects us and calls us to a new way of life together. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your cross and resurrection. You have given us your very self. And that while we might, with our character flaws, like the size of a joist, the floor beam that connects the whole length of a house, we smack people around with it, often unknowingly, you took on another piece of wood. You went to the cross so that we could be set free. Lord, we pray that we would live this life with you now. We pray all of this in your name and in the freedom we have of receiving your grace and forgiveness and not your judgment. Amen. 
friends, we'll be talking with you again soon. We encourage you look at the survey on Monday, fill that out, join us in our podcasts, and we hope to connect with you digitally very soon again. God bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you through the forgiveness you received in Christ. Oh, to grace, how-